So what I'd like to ask you to do is to open in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1. You got it? I'm going to read verses from Colossians 1, beginning at verse 24, going through 29. This is the Word of God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of His body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the Word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Let's pray. Lord our God, we thank you for this piece of your word and the way that it reminds us that you are a God who calls people out of darkness and into the light of Christ and that you even lay upon your church both the the joy and the calling of proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. Uh, We recognize that this text comes from the Apostle Paul who was uniquely called and yet, uh, Lord, he will say even in the same book that we as a church together are to walk in wisdom toward those who are outside So Lord, we pray that you continue to help us to understand what it means to be faithful salt and light in this world. Uh, I pray for my friends that they uh, would be able to discern what is good from what is best, and even that which is right from that which is wrong. Uh, Might we spit out the bones, and yet might we chew on the things that are faithful according to your word. Might we be faithful now as we think about your word together as it relates to the work of the church. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so uh, as has been the case most mornings, uh, the the two lessons this morning are uh, two sides of a coin, uh, somewhat distinct and yet inseparable. And so in in the first portion of our time, uh, what I'm going to do is just tell a handful of stories uh, about uh, some things that encourage me in the OPC. And then uh, probably even beginning in part of our time uh, in this lesson and spilling over into the next one after our break, uh, I want to do some real practical nuts and bolts stuff and talk about building a culture of evangelism. So in short, applying all the things we've been talking about and discussing ways that we can actually do these things together as a church. Uh, There will be time for Q&A in our second session this morning. Uh, So when I was in seminary, uh, is coming to the end. Uh, I had a handful of options, you know, like every seminary student does, which denomination are you going to go and serve? Where are you going to go? Uh, what are you going to do? And as I was processing that, uh, one of the things that was attractive to me about the OPC uh, was, as I mentioned before, that it just seemed like a fairly conservative, uh, faithful church that wanted to be faithful to the reform standards, had a great, uh, rich history to the extent uh, that I was able to understand those things. It, it seemed to me like a story I wanted to be a part of. And at the same time, uh, at least the people that I was getting to know and the conversations that I was having uh, gave me uh, a real sense that they were interested also in things like evangelism and church planning. Uh, now, I don't... Uh, 
mean to say anything negative about any other denominations, but one of the things that I felt uh, was attractive to me about the OPC is that, at least in my mind, in fact, I'll, I'll quote a friend from another denomination who felt that uh, th- there are denominations out there that are asking the question, how broadly evangelical can they be and still be reformed? And the OPC just kind of didn't like the question. It wanted to be reformed. But it also wanted to be evangelistic. And that was an attractive uh, idea to me, to be both reformed and evangelistic. And uh, among a handful of things I would love for you to walk away with is a desire to really be both. Like, to be able to say with Machen, isn't the reformed faith grand? And to love the idea of being part of reformed churches and uh, reformed families and to, to love reformed theology. The reformed faith is a beautiful thing. Like I, I love it. The longer I'm in it, the more I like it. It's, it's really fantastic. I want my kids to love it and my grandkids to close my eyes quoting from it. Right? That's literally the way I think. Okay? And at the same time, uh, I've been laboring to make the point that to be reformed means to be evangelistic. And that if somehow we have atrophied in the area of evangelism, in a certain sense, we've atrophied in what it means to be reformed. Uh, Because the history of reformed theology is also the history of good evangelism, right? It kind of began there. And that's where we are today as an outgrowth of things that began uh, in that Protestant Reformation, which is really just a return to what the Bible had always taught. So what I want to do is talk a little bit about some things in the OPC, just kind of anecdotal little stories, uh, a little collage, if you will, of uh, some, some ways in which I feel like the things that we are discussing here have been embodied. And when I uh, began uh, some of the earlier lectures, I was trying to make the point that when you look at the early story of the OPC, there was a lot of really great evangelism. And so if, if somehow in your mind, if by chance, uh, you have it in your mind that Orthodox Presbyterians aren't always that engaged in evangelism or whatever. Uh, I, I want to kind of push back on that and say, well, we should be, number one, and we have been, number two, and we're going to be, number three, because you're all at family camp and, you know, we've had hired people to follow you and make sure you do this. Just kidding. Right? Uh, so, you know, I talked about Van Til, the street preacher, the guy going around uh, hospital rooms doing all that kind of stuff, uh, Machen in his own way, uh, Calvin in his own way, uh, to start uh, close to home. I'm sure a lot of you know the stories of churches in your own presbytery, how they uh, came into being. I'm not going to spend much time there because I'm sure it's familiar, but uh, one story that I've enjoyed hearing from a number of people uh, over time is a fellow named Edwards Elliott, who, if I understand it, was one of the early pastors at uh, Westminster Garden Grove. Right? If Barbara ceases to nod her head like this, I, I will know that I am misspeaking. If Barbara does like this, I'm going to get really nervous. Okay? Uh, so remember what I said, you know, on the back row, I, I can see you blink. As long as you're smiling, Barbara, I feel safe. Uh, so one of the stories I love hearing is that uh, this pastor from back in the day uh, went kind of door to door evangelizing people, and door-to-door evangelism leads to Bible studies, and a Bible study uh, grows into a church, and then around other parts of the geography of your presbytery, similar things happen uh, where evangelism leads to Bible studies, and Bible studies lead to churches, and now uh, some of the churches that you are here now a part of, uh, if you actually go back, and I think, I think every member that really loves their church ought to consider like going back and asking the question, you know, tell me about how do we get this thing going? A lot of times there's some really cool stories there, uh, beautiful little expressions of sacrifice 
uh, laborers that are just really worth hearing about. And uh, everybody wants to be a part of a story. That one thing I'm fully convinced of as a student of postmodernism, everybody wants to be part of a story, have some sense of identity, and this is where I belong. And to have those stories told, how did your church come into existence? What, what led to its formation? Who were the people? Uh, who, who are the grandmas and grandpas who laid down their life to get this thing going? Because somebody did, and we're the beneficiaries of the work that they did. So ask, ask your pastors and elders to tell you the story of the church and maybe even ask the question, so where was evangelism in that story? It's a great question to talk about, right? Uh, in, in John Murray's collected works, I think it's volume uh, one, there's a chapter on bicycle evangelists. And uh, this is just a fantastic little, like, really? That's in his collected works of systematic theology? Well, he was a chairman uh, for a committee on evangelism uh, that had a goal of trying to reach a really hard and unreachable portion of New England uh, where the gospel had once thrived. Uh, a sobering reality in our history is that a lot of our you know, Ivy League institutions, Princeton, Harvard, Yale, places like that, uh, were originally started to be what? Seminaries, right? Uh, they were originally theological institutions with a charter for training pastors. That's how a lot of them got started. And then over time, you know, these things kind of get upside down and maybe even the, the light turns to pretty profound darkness. And there were people back in Murray's time, um, I'm forgetting what decade it is right off the top of my head. I um, don't want to misspeak because Barbara is still watching. Um, but in that context, there was a desire to see uh, the gospel get back into areas where it had kind of dried up, which I think is a worthy uh, endeavor to reconsider uh, for our purposes as well. And so uh, they had set aside some money for a couple of guys to go and to do this work. And then they got these guys, these seminary students out there to start doing this work and realized, you know what, uh, we need more people. But they didn't have any money. I think it was in the 40s. And there, you know, money was tight. Barbara, am I right? Am I wrong? Okay, she's still nodding, smiling. I'm going to blow it soon. She's going to have to you know, graciously correct me probably. Um, so, you know, they, they cobbled together enough money. They couldn't afford to get cars. They couldn't afford uh, full-on salaries. And they, they came up with this plan. They, they'd get a handful of guys and some bicycles. And these guys would bicycle around New England doing evangelism, trying to reach people for Christ with the hope of establishing Bible studies that might lead to churches and kind of, you know, move on and re-strengthen uh, this area. And why am I telling this story? Because I just think it's fantastic to imagine a bunch of Orthodox Presbyterians biking around like Mormons. <laughs> right? If I go door to door, I always get suspected of being what? Why, why was that so easy for you to look at me and say Jehovah's Witness? Why, why didn't you say Mormon? Oh, forget it. Yeah, <clears throat> it is true, though. I, I get, uh, if I go by two by two or whatever, um, I, I get uh, told I, I look like a Jehovah's Witness coming. All right, so there it is. Uh, so, you know, we have things like that in our history. You know, churches on the West Coast being started by door-to-door evangelism and people uh, coming to Christ that way and forming Bible studies, and that leads to churches. You have stories on the West Coast, or excuse me, the East Coast, uh, up and down of similar things. Bicycle evangelists, guys going out there and saying, sure, I'll ride my bike around a neighborhood and just try to strike up conversation with people and, and talk about Christ. Uh, now, I, I want to admit here and uh, this will spill over into some thoughts in the next session as well, uh, that I'm not necessarily suggesting that door-to-door -door evangelism uh, is the way to go today. 
In fact, uh, one of the hard realities is you just simply have to admit, in this day and age, frankly, number one, uh, people aren't interested in opening up their front door and talking to a stranger. Uh, Number two, in the South, where I live, gone are the days of front porches, right? Uh, The door-to-door thing was kind of built on a different dynamic where people were uh, willing to talk to their neighbors. Uh, Terry Johnson, in his book, The Family Worship Book, makes a really interesting little kind of narrative description where he describes uh, houses that were built a few decades ago in the South. They all had uh, these front porches, and people would sit out on their front porch and, and drink that heavenly liqueur, sweet tea. That's right, there is a Christian here. I'm good to... <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. There's also a diabetic here. So if you, <laughs> if you drink enough sweet tea, you will soon uh, be a, a happy diabetic. It's kind of the way that it works. Um, I can't get my wife to drink this stuff. Uh, that's why she looks healthier than I do. Uh, you know, so you have front porches, and the idea is people come home from work, and they sit on the front porch, and they make a you know, big thing of uh, sweet tea or lemonade, and you know, people kind of stroll by, and you just talk and uh, mix up with your neighbors and talk about life. And in that context, people built community, right? Well, then you have kind of a change where over time things become a bit different. No longer are houses built with front porches, built for people to actually sit out there and enjoy like they once were. Uh, We have rather uh, garage doors and this new dynamic in life uh, where now you can kind of go from your, your bedroom to your kitchen Uh, to the car almost without seeing a person in many people's morning routines and drive in your closed-in car through your garage door and get to your office where you have a cubicle and do your work inside this little box that kind of contains your your life and labor and then reverse the thing, go back home. And then, by the way, now everybody has these little personal, you know, portable TV screens where everything they really want to pay attention to uh, is in their pocket, Now, I'm adding on to what Terry Johnson says, but trying to make the point that a lot of dynamics have changed socially in the world, the way that people relate to one another, even the way uh, families relate to one another. Uh, One of the things that Reformed folks like us have been, I think, the strongest in uh, would be things like family devotions, family worship, family community. But more and more I hear as a pastor, I imagine uh, how much you might agree with this, that it's tough to get the family even to the table. Like to get the whole family to the table for a meal has become a real challenge because everybody's being pulled 26 different directions. And when we come home, people bolt into their rooms. They've got their computers. They've got their iPads. They have to check their Facebook account, uh, which, by the way, uh, I'm so proud of this. I'm not supposed to say I'm proud, right? I'm a pastor and it doesn't sound right. But I'm really proud of the fact that I've never had a Facebook account. I'm like one of three people left on the planet. I am the... Di- oh, thank you. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> nice, nice. Well, yeah, I'll tell you what, the more I watch other people's Facebook account problems, the happier I am that I don't have one. Uh, so anyway, I'm not sure if I'm missing anything. Um, so the point that I'm trying to make is the way that community is built now is very different than it was a few decades ago. The way that people even engage meaningful conversation uh, is very different now than it was a handful of decades ago. Uh, even in the family itself, it's becoming very hard for people to actually find common space, common time where we sit down and actually look one another in the eyes. When you think about it, uh, just reflect on a week of your social interaction. How much of it is via some media? 
compared to how much of it is eye-to-eye, face-to-face. The world is changing. And uh, Johnson notes that with uh, these changing dynamics, you know, from front porches to garage doors to air-conditioned life where uh, we're socially air-conditioned from one another, it's becoming harder and harder to not only relate to people, but to actually even meet people and look them in the eye. Uh, So if that's uh, a reflection on the challenge within the family, which I I think is something we need to think about because family dynamics are changing and we just need to talk about it, Uh, but how much more does it become a challenge for things like evangelism as well, where you're trying uh, to engage people and it's really hard to get real time with people, where you're actually like having real time with people, not cyber time. Now, uh, another little uh, nuance I think that makes this a bit tricky is that people no longer trust religious professionals. It's, it's interesting to me, uh, and you just, you just have to figure out what to do with it, but it really is the case. I, I probably find it easier to have evangelistic conversations with people on my day off when I'm at the beach with my kids and you know, I let my hair down and look almost as scary as Mark, and uh, maybe scarier, and, you know, people just don't look at me and, and see an, a, a pastor coming. They, they just don't, right? And, and if they did, you know, there's almost a built-in obstacle there. Uh, I think there was a, there was a, you know, in the Billy Graham generation, I, I, think, I think some, it's interesting with Billy Graham's passing, I think, uh, I think a lot of things kind of passed with him because he was sort of the emblem of the religious American religious professional, whether you agree with this stuff or not, he just was sort of the cultural emblem of American evangelicalism and the idea of a religious professional. You know, in, in his day, in the D. James Kennedy day, uh, you could go door to door to people and sell religion, and they actually might open up and let you in. Uh, and by the way, that was also the way people bought vacuum cleaners and encyclopedias. Do you guys know what an encyclopedia is? In my day, they didn't fit on a phone. <laughs> they, they took up about this much shelf space, right? Uh, but if you think about it, there was a time when people would go door to door and they'd sell things and people would open up and get kind of excited. You know, okay, here comes the vacuum cleaner guy, here comes the encyclopedia guy, or maybe they'd get excited. But at the end of the day, it was a business. And in that time frame, people could go door to door and knock and create religious conversations. Evangelism Explosion was built on uh, this kind of dynamic. Uh, you know, the Mormons figured it out. The Jehovah's Witnesses figured it out. Even some Orthodox Presbyterians did it. And to a relative extent, it worked. But in this day and age, it's a lot harder because, again, people don't have front porches. Uh, they hear a knock at the door, and it's almost like a foreign and threatening thing, right? Like, what do you do? A knock at the door. <laughs> Who's there? Are you going to stand and talk to a total stranger about religion at your front door? What if he's wearing a tie? Does that make you trust him? No, I'm not trying to be snarky about uh, you know ties or whatever, but I'm trying to make the point that just because someone puts on the clothes of professionalism and carries a bag full of religious books does not mean that trust and respect are immediately established. Uh, that was a very modern phenomenon. We now live in a postmodern, post-authority, post-trust kind of environment where the whole game has gotten uh, quite a bit tricky. And uh, like it or not, we have to 
uh, we have to adjust some things or at least be willing to consider adjusting some things uh, lest we simply speak our own language and dismiss the world for not being willing to listen to our version of uh, things religious. Now, I'm not talking about adjusting the substance of what we do whatsoever at all. But I am saying uh, we need to think about how we go about communicating old, old truths in these particular days. So, you know, a couple of nights ago, I told you the story of uh, how I, I came to Christ. And uh, I, I, there's a Grateful Dead song with a, with a wonderful line for the two people that know Grateful Dead songs here. Uh, you know, what a long, strange trip it's been. And uh, when you think about it, it is a little bit of a strange thing for this former, you know, deadhead hippie, once with dreadlocks and the whole nine yards, uh, now to be standing in front of you as an Orthodox Presbyterian pastor. And I'm only referring back to this uh, to just try to make the point that, uh, that God is saving all kinds of people into the church, and He's also raising up all kinds of leaders. And I, I think that's simply a natural outgrowth of the cultural changes of the time in which we live. In other words, it's not surprising to me that even here in this room, uh, there are guys who have come to us by way of places like Calvary Chapel and other things who discover the Reformed faith, and all of a sudden they become church planners in the OPC. That's, that's, that's a broadening dynamic. The OPC is becoming a, a broader cultural expression in a lot of ways. I serve our denominations uh, church planning committee, and there's a funny little story to me, and this, I think it's kind of funny, that uh, in, in, in the Atlanta, Georgia area, uh, we have a historically uh, very time-tested, faithful church, mostly Caucasian, now being pastored by a guy from Ethiopia or Eritrea. I love that. So you got an all-black guy from Eritrea pastoring an all-white church in the south. I dig this. This is the OPC that I'm a part of. I like it. Also, their church is helping a all-white lawyer plan a church in an area called Clarkston, Georgia, which is the most culturally diverse uh, portion now in the entire United States, even more than uh, New York, Ellis Island area. It's literally nicknamed the Ellis Island of the South. And there is this pasty white guy uh, ministering uh, to people who are refugees and asylum seekers from Middle Eastern countries in a very culturally cosmopolitan area. Uh, this is the OPC. By the way, the church is overseeing that is with the black guy pastoring all the white people. This is good stuff. Uh, the OPC, I think, is, is listening. And, I, and some of the things I say, maybe it might make you, you know, just a little bit uncomfortable. Maybe it might make you really uh, excited. But I, I really feel like there are exciting things going on now, and there are really exciting uh, days and things ahead. Uh, but I think we have to be willing to listen and willing to engage and willing to be humble and just to think about uh, the way that we're uh, doing at least certain things, particularly outreach, Okay. Uh, so I do want to tell you the story of, uh, of our church plan. I think it's a good story to tell. It's God's story, what he's ultimately done. Uh, but you might find this kind of encouraging, uh, borderline unbelievable. Uh, so uh, I've been a pastor now uh, for 17 years in the OP. Uh, I originally went to a church in uh, Orlando, straight from seminary, my internship here, and was an associate pastor for a couple years at a church uh, who uh, the pastor there, uh, Larry Menninger, a really fantastic guy, uh, he had a health crisis uh, and they needed someone to come in and help him and they wanted to plant a church on the other side of town. So the plan was if things went well, we would plant a church on the other side of town in about two or three years. That came to fruition and we were church planning over there. This was a daughter church. 
Uh, it was a, a really uh, good, hard, humbling thing uh, to be a church planner so young. I felt like for me, at least, uh, we began with morning and evening worship and weekly communion from day one. I went from preaching twice a month to twice a week. I went from having a secretary who did the bulletin to my wife becoming the immediate church secretary who uh, graciously did the bulletin. Uh, you've gotten to know me a little bit now. You can, you can probably tell that I like evangelism and uh, feel like that's something I should be doing a lot of. And frankly, in that context, uh, probably wasn't doing nearly as much of it as I could have or should have. And looking back at it, I just really think that was uh, the case. And yet the Lord is gracious to prosper that church. It's uh, doing very well now. Uh, it has another pastor and the church is thriving. God's been very merciful there. Uh, but in that context, the OPC I had been discussing for a while, at least at one time uh, at the denominational level, the idea of planning churches in cities where we did not have any uh, presence. And Jacksonville, Florida, which is just north of us, was one of those target areas, so to speak. And a plan came up that involved the idea of parachute planning up there in that area. Parachute planning means when you begin, you have no core group. So when we moved to St. Augustine, uh, there was literally one family committed to the idea of starting that church, who, by the way, is no longer there, uh, but at that time was. And it was a pretty insane idea. God in his wonderful providence, you think God has a sense of humor? Kind of a deep theological question, right? Does God smile? Does God laugh? It says in the Psalms, he who sits in the heavens laughs. Uh, we talk about smiling providences. Well, in God's providence, uh, our son Carl, who's here, all three of our kids are adopting adopted, and uh, Carl was given to us literally the day before I preached my goodbye sermon in Orlando and moved to St. Augustine. It really, looking back at it, like I'm, I'm, I'm just amazed I'm still alive. I'm amazed my wife hasn't killed me. Um, thank you, honey. So we're in the middle of packing up, getting ready to say goodbye. We're going to move on. We're going to parachute plant this church. That in and of itself is insane. Looking back at it, I mean, it's, it, it really just was like, wow, God, this is really crazy. And then we get this phone call out of the blue. A little boy has been born in Pensacola. He has a hole in his head. Do you want to know anything more? Could you repeat that? <laughs> Start with the hole in the head part. So he's just missing a little patch of skin there. You can't even see it anymore. It's, it's just a little cosmetic thing or whatever. But social worker didn't know that. She's like, you don't have to get back to you. What does it mean? Can you stick your hand in his head? I mean, what, what are you telling me about this little bit? Really, I mean, I was somewhere between really excited and terrified. You know, and when you're, when you're adopting, you're a beggar. You just, you know, you, you have to wait. The phone rings or it doesn't ring. When it rings, you can make a decision. But that's kind of the way that it worked out. So Carl was... Uh, uh, all of a sudden, in the picture, uh, we had this crazy little story. We had to get paperwork and all this kind of stuff that we weren't ready for. He's given to us on Saturday. On Sunday, I preached my goodbye sermon. On Sunday night, I preached at our vacant uh, pulpit in Gainesville, Florida, that was waiting for Joel Fick to come as its pastor. And the next day, we moved to St. Augustine. Uh, we took a month off. We actually came out here and tried to remember what our names were. Uh, had some time with family, spent some time with Mark and Tammy. And then I uh, went back and began a Bible study with just a couple families, literally like two families. One other came into the picture about this time, and we began a Bible study that just immediately just mushroomed. It literally went from a couple families to 30 to 40 people in the first month, 
by the second month, it's like 50 to 60 people. And going into the third month, it's like no-brainer. We should just start services. It was fantastic. We'd have this big Bible study at our house on a Friday night. I was doing like an exploratory Bible study about what the church would be like when it got going. It was basically the membership class, uh, the Confessing Christ. I basically used that as an outline and just slowed it down and did a whole lot of uh, little mini-studies on this. We had a young lady who would play a piano towards the end. We gave out literature uh, it would block off traffic in our neighborhood. And I can remember, you know, a policeman coming one time and, you know, you look like me and it's Friday night, a bunch of cars at the house. What do you think's going on? <laughs> and, you know, it's a Bible study. What? Well, sure it is. Well, come on in. <laughs> captive audience, right? Who's captive now? <clears throat> so, you know, in the Lord's providence, uh, we... Uh, saw some very wonderful and encouraging fruit. I, I just, you know, it's, really, it's, it's the Lord's providence. God had a beautiful plan to just uh, blow my mind and the presbytery. I mean, you know, to talk about it now, I hope you kind of share in the joy, excitement, like this is just a really crazy story. Only God could do this, right? But if he can raise the dead, he can plant a church. So <clears throat> we began and uh, had our first worship service five months after we were there. And in time, uh, the church uh, organized actually pretty early for OPC standards, which means we had our own elders and oversight and the budget was solid and all that kind of stuff. And uh, I'm going to pause there for just a minute and uh, come back to now a few questions that, that might be sort of uh, beginning to come together. And uh, one is uh, that when we got this thing going, uh, one of the things that I recognized was I, I couldn't do this by myself. And I needed people that were in the group to have a sense of this is their church to plan as well. So I'm the church planner, but this is their church to plan as well. The nice thing about the South is Southern Bible Belt Christianity has its strengths and weaknesses. It's really weak on theology. It's really weak on ecclesiology. It's, it's probably weak as well on things like family worship and Lord's Day practices. You, know, you hear my little joke about racing the, the Baptist to Denny's or whatever. Um, but they're fantastic when it comes to evangelism. Uh, evangelism's like a fruit of the Spirit. It, it's, you know, it, 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 I mean, it literally is like just front and center with everyone. Uh, so it, what's interesting is in, in my context, if I told people in that group, you know what, lay people don't do evangelism. They would just look at me like, what are you smoking? And I'd have to tell them, no, I stopped that. There are people that really had a zeal to go out and uh, to share the gospel, and uh, it was really exciting to work alongside them uh, to encourage that, to train it. I and mean, I'd love to tell you, you know, I just did everything, and you know, if I were a little more flexible, I could pat more me, but that's, it really just didn't happen that way. The truth is, uh, there were people that got excited about the work of the church, that saw themselves as planning the church with me in a certain sense, uh, that were interested in going out and talking to strangers, and uh, inviting people to church. Uh, and God did uh, really amazing and beautiful things. I'll, I'll tell you just a couple of stories of particular, uh, particular people. Uh, there's this uh, older Jewish couple uh, who, were, who were really, um, they were odd. 
Uh, they were wonderful, sweet, uh, Christ-loving people who came to the Lord through a really uh, interesting scenario. Uh, the husband would always come in with a gigantic star of David on his chest. I'm not really criticizing that, but it was just sort of a standout feature. They had that strong northeastern Jewish grandma kind of accent, both of them, and uh, were just very interesting people to talk about or talk to. But one of the things that was interesting about them is they be- believed wholeheartedly in aliens, and that the government is hiding something in Area 52, somewhere, you know, a spaceship or something. And when we interviewed them for membership, which is just one of the strangest experiences of my life, you ever just have a, an experience where you're like, you know, I, I think this is real, but this could actually be a dream. Like, this has the makings of just, you know, I had, I had, I had too much chocolate, I had salsa, and it just, you know what I mean? It's now affecting my brain chemistry. It was one of these interesting dynamics and uh, this sweet couple, we were talking to them, uh, we're like, you know, we're, we're not persuaded that these concerns you have about aliens and a plane being hidden or whatever in Ohio, that, that, that that's real. And we just need you to know that because they like to talk, this, talk about this to everyone in the church. And like, more importantly, we, we need you to not like, you know, when visitors come and you sit down and kind of over the potluck start telling about the aliens and yeah, we love our church. Isn't the pastor great? And by the way, I mean, what do you think they're doing with them? <laughs> we, we need to ask you to stop that. So a number of you know my mom. She was a member at uh, Calvin in Phoenix before her husband passed away. And we, we brought mom home. She lives with us now. And so she moved in and had become a member already. And uh, this, this family, after they joined, are sitting at a table with my mom. And uh, sure enough, they begin telling her, yeah, oh yeah, we love coming to this great church. But there's aliens. I just don't know. What do you think they should do? But wait a minute. Whatever you do, don't tell the pastor that we're talking to you about this. <laughs> and if you've met my mom, you know she's going to have a little fun with this. All my sense of wit and most of my good qualities come from her. And she says, well, I don't know how to break this to you, but he's my son. <laughs> I get this sheepish, apologetic phone call the next day begging me not to kick them out of the church. But this couple, strange as they were, and they're strange, they're quirky. Uh, they, they make fantastic Orthodox Presbyterians. <laughs> I know, I said it. <laughs> uh, they, they go to Walmart and walk up and down the aisles, and as they're shopping, they literally would hand out tracts. Now, I'm not advocating that. I'm not saying I ever even tried to talk them into doing that, but that's just what they did, and that's just the kind of strange people the Lord gave us who, on the one hand, all this, and yet in this very sweet, childlike way, uh, they really love Jesus and love talking to people about Jesus, and they would do things like that. Uh, there's this, uh, this sweet elderly lady in our church who has just had one of the most hard, broken lives. Like, if you listen to her talk, she cries and you do too. She's just, she's just experienced more pain than any person I've, I've ever met and had a real, real tender heart for the gospel and both writing about it and uh, talking to people about Christ as well. Our church had a, uh, I said had regrettably, it's in the past tense, I could explain that, but uh, for now, we had a, a really fun little ministry at a nearby secular college and I got to do the evangelism 
and uh, apologetics teaching uh, for the InterVarsity Fellowship. Uh, and this, I think, was one of, the, one of the really great things our church has done and probably did pretty well. Uh, I was working with a handful of college kids on this, on this campus. We would go on campus and do evangelism. Uh, we'd do you know, little things like uh, uh, Coke and a Question, where we'd bring coolers full of uh, <clears throat> Coke on ice or water bottles. You know, in Florida, you're always thirsty. It's hot. Uh, we have this thing called humidity. It makes it even more hot. And so if somebody would stand around and ask one question about God or the Bible, uh, we'd give them a Coke while we tried to answer their question. And, this, and the kids, college kids, would come with me, and I was kind of trying to train them, and then they would stand around and help do it. You know, if you look like me and you're a college kid, maybe you're going to stand and talk. We've got a few college kids around. It's easier for people to stop and say, what are you doing? I'd love a drink, right? So out of that... Uh, our church has actually seen uh, a number of college kids come to Christ, including, and this is like one of my treasures, probably every pastor thinks about once in a while, like, who's going to be the guy who replaces me someday or closes my eyes and preaches my sermon? This could likely be the guy. So this young guy uh, was a flaming liberal and uh, was uh, coming to this thing, uh, living with his girlfriend, uh, decided at one point he wanted to come and visit the church uh, decided he liked the church and wanted to join. We go out for a slice of pizza. Uh, his mom's a PCUSA elder. His dad is a yoga instructor. Um, I had some uphill distance to climb with this guy, and he begins telling me his story, and he and his girlfriend are together, and he wants to join the church. Is that a problem? I'm like, yeah, it's a problem. <laughs> of course it's a problem. You know, we talked about it, and he disappeared for a while. I was kind of heartbroken, right? Pastor, you get excited about that kind of stuff. And he disappeared for about a year. And then he shows up one night, and he sits like up in the nosebleed section, this little auditorium where we did our campus ministry, and he's just sitting there listening. And he comes back a second time. He didn't talk the first time. He comes back the second time, sits again in the nosebleed section, and comes down and says, I think we need to talk. And you could just see it on his face, just emptied. You know that look. Just broken and done ready to talk. We go out, have another slice of pizza, same place. He's like, yeah, I walked away. This has not been good. I think I'd like to come back, but I've got a lot of questions. I'm just not sure. And I said, why don't we read through a book together? He's like, yeah, I'd like to do that. So we picked out Van Til's Defense of the Faith. Why, why is he laughing? He's a college kid. Come on. So we, we read through Van Til's Defense of the Faith and discussed it, and he became a Christian. And when he made his profession of faith before the elders, there was not a dry eye in the room. Most, I mean, just a treasure, right? Like, there's a ton of stuff I'm hoping to forget. Uh, there's a shorter list of things I'm hoping to remember. This is on that list of things I really hope to remember was, was this young man's profession of faith. And, uh, and then it gets really interesting because there was a young lady uh, in that Bible study who also became a Christian, largely through the influence of a couple of Christian kids in our church. Very brilliant young lady, uh, had been like a junior uh, Olympic. She's one of those kids who graduates high school at 15 and college at 18 and, you know, overly uh, accomplished type A workaholic kind of personality, kind of destroyed her knees and stuff doing the Olympics and... Um, <clears throat> very bright, very argumentative, and uh, a pre-law student basically evangelized her, and she came into the church and made a profession of faith, and these two hated each other. Guess you can see what's coming. <laughs> <clears throat> so the Lord's Supper 
makes them say, okay, I got to talk to that person because I really don't like him. Yeah, I don't really don't like her. And they decided they needed to talk and they had a little conversation over tea. And six months later, I'm doing premarital counseling. <laughs> got to do their wedding. Uh, this is not really about evangelism, but it's a cool story. I've got, I've got the craziest wedding stories, by the way. Sometimes pastors get around, so tell your, like a card game. I'll, I'll up you one. So they had a young lady who passed out with a seizure twice and had to be carried out in it by an ambulance uh, during the wedding, and they're all wearing dresses. She falls down like this. I make the guys form a soccer wall facing out until the paramedics get there. We resume the wedding, and uh, it's just a crazy story. And so uh, these, this couple now uh, gets discipled in our church. They're now at just graduated seminary. Uh, he's the one who's going to do a, a church planning internship, and we're hoping we'll come back and church plant for us in a year. Uh, my, point, my reason for telling this story is, frankly, just to encourage you. Like, God's doing crazy things. And people are coming to Christ in beautiful, amazing ways. There's nothing overly brilliant about anything I just said. It's just a story, right? Uh, some of it involves a little bit of stuff the pastor did. Parts of it are other things people in the church did. Uh, but now these two are on fire for Christ. And one thing I was talking about with somebody yesterday evening that kind of, you know, I'm not quite sure we, we came to a good answer to it, but it's, it's a sobering question. Uh, it, it is a fair observation that often new Christians do a lot of evangelism and seem pretty comfortable with it. And for some reason over time, it gets harder for more mature Christians if you can help me unravel that, it would be good because I'm not quite sure I understand it. But why is it that new Christians, like they, you know, they're, 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 like, they're like Bambi, right? They get Twitter padded and they just start babbling about, you know, I just, I just got saved. I'm getting baptized. Come and see this. I'm excited. Come to my church. Meet this crazy guy. He, t- he teaches me the Bible, right? Uh, but over time, I, I don't know, something kind of some ISIS, and uh, I, I think we need to think about what that is and, and maybe pray that the Lord would help us to renew that sense of first love joy and, uh, and, and get more excited about things. Uh, there's a, there's a, a, a black gentleman in our church, who is, and it's a big deal in the South, you know, where, where racial lines are, are stronger. Race, East Coast, ethnic dynamics, West Coast, totally different worlds. As one has lived on both sides several times, totally different worlds. And we have a, a fantastic black gentleman uh, in our church now. He's one of our elders. When we first started coming to the church, I just fell in love with this guy. As teachable as, as a human being can be. Shows up to absolutely everything. Reads everything recommended. Uh, I mean, just on fire. And one of the things that's really significant in, in southern uh, black culture, uh, dads are like unicorns. You've heard of them, but you almost never see them. And so if you are a man who is being faithful to his family and, and loves his kids, uh, I mean, you are 100 feet tall. And this gentleman is 100 feet tall, and is just that guy in the neighborhood that every kid wants to be around. And he's that dad in the neighborhood that, that every kid wishes he had one just like him. And as an evangelist goes, he just, I mean, he just loves the gospel. He loves the church. He loves the Reformed faith. He, he defends this in ways I which every member of my congregation was. When, when he got ordained as an elder, so many people showed up from the hood. Uh, our, our church, it was just, it was just absolutely uh, fantastic. His, his, uh, his granddaughter 
uh, is in our church, beautiful young uh, 16-year-old uh, black lady, uh, black young lady, just, just gorgeous. Uh, a couple months ago, her birth dad was shot and killed uh, in a drug deal that went bad. Literally shot and killed. And this whole thing for me was just uh, really, really sobering and amazing. And one of the impressive things to me to see has been the influence of the grandpa, not only on others in that context, but on the granddaughter and how she has stood. Like, you know, my dad just got shot. You want to talk about somebody who's had a reason to check out or get mad at God. Her mom, by the way, is a crack addict on the street. Every kid she's had from a different dad. And Lily right now is on the street. And yet this young lady is rock solid for the gospel and, and, and a real defender of the faith. So I, I'm saying that. That's the story of a young teenage black girl. No dad. Dad who's been shot. Lives with their grandparents. Uh, pretty low income scenario. And at the end of the day, on fire for the reformed faith. If I'm challenging some of you teenagers, it's because I'm challenging some of you teenagers. You should be challenged by this. You should also be encouraged by this. Right? Uh, she'd love to know a tenth of what you guys know. She'd love to have something you have, which is a whole family. And frankly, growing up, I would have too. So who's got a better reason to share about the beauties of Christ and the hope that we have in Him, right? Right. We've got something really beautiful uh, to share. Uh, I, am, I am really encouraged. I, I need to, actually, let me stop. Uh, I've got a lot more to say. I have no sense of time. Al, talk to me. That, that doesn't mean anything. How many minutes do I have? Eight minutes before break time? This is the evil twitch look. Not very scary. So uh, a point that I'll, I'll make, and then I'll, uh, I'll slow down for just a moment, um, and we'll take our break. And that is, as we're preparing for our break, one of the things I'm just overwhelmingly encouraged by as a pastor, as somebody's interested in evangelism, is that I, I really have a lot of hope uh, for the rising generation. Like, you guys, I think, are going to do this even better than I'm doing it, and pastors my age are doing it. I actually see uh, a lot of strength coming up. And I was mentioning this to a couple of folks last night. can't remember the entire way the conversation went. But your generation is so bold, so out there, uh, so aggressive about a lot of things uh, that for those that are actually committed to the faith, I think you're going to see like a, like a, I honestly think, I don't usually speak in these categories, but I'm, I'm, I'm so optimistic about this. I actually think churches, and particularly a denomination like ours, are about to make a surge forward or a comeback. You know, or, or we're going to be disclosing some churches that just you know, aren't going to turn outward and, and talk to anybody. But at the end of the day, I actually believe what's going to happen is that this generation right here, you guys are going to rise up and say, you know what, I've been given something fantastic. I've got parents, I've got a good church, I've gotten a good education, I've got all the tools, I'm around people that love to talk, I've got friends that are frankly envious of the life that I've been able to live, and I've got Jesus. And with Jesus... I've got everything. And that the little stories that I'm talking about that I've just shared right now are going to get multiplied and multiplied and multiplied in your churches, in this presbytery, just as they are in our church and in our presbytery. And uh, as we 
just try to land the plane here. I think this is a really fantastic time to go back to things like what Machen and Van Til said, uh, to enter into this next stage with a lot of joy and optimism and frankly, a genuine sense that God's about to do something really fantastic because I really believe He is. The nice thing, by the way, about uh, the rest of what the church is doing that's getting all kind of confused and messed up is it's making things in a certain sense more clear, right? Uh, you, you can see the wheat from the chaff maybe a bit more clearly. As the church now, frankly, begins to experience more and more persecution than it has seen uh, in a lot of this nation's history. I mean, you, you can sense right now there's pressure on the church. It's going to make you either be real or walk away. But if you stand and continue to stand with Christ and His church, you're going to make a bold stand because the world's probably not going to give you an alternative. If you look at where we're at today, go back 20 years ago. Big change, right? All right, we'll take a gulp and go 20 years forward. That's sobering. But it's interesting that in the history of the church, the church is always at its best when it's under pressure. Because when you're under pressure, you step up. You man up. You own the cross. And I think we're poised, postured really well, not only uh, to carry our cross, but to do it in the context of the Reformed faith and Reformed churches. I have a lot more that I want to say, but I will stop there and we can take our break and come back and talk about even more nuts and bolts uh, ways to carry out some of these ideas.